morning again, everyone. Morning again. In my junior year in college at Harvey, had a uh, class, which is a really good one, really enjoyed. The Amen 324 Evangelism. I think now it's actually called Evangelism and Church Growth. And it was one of one of my favorite classes that I had, especially in that semester. One, because it was with one of my favorite teachers, who was also my advisor and really a good friend and mentor. And also because it was the first uh, time that Christy and I actually were in the same class together. And honestly, she always took much better notes than I did, so it went really well for me. Um, but there was something in that class that there were lots of good things that we learned in there. But I remember early on in that class, there was something that has stuck with me. A professor talked about how in many areas, especially as this was in, in an era where there was a lot of talk in church growth circles about why big church, certain churches were getting bigger, certain ones were growing, and, and certain ones weren't, and, and sort of a suspicious eye cast towards some of the biggest churches. And there was this assumption that was out there that the biggest churches, the fastest growing churches, the ones that seemed to be the most effective at bringing more people in, were the ones that really didn't require much once you got there. That these were the churches where they said, you know, just, you know, they just tried to get a lot of people in the door, made them feel good about being there, and that was enough. And it was a pretty common assumption, but our teacher shared with us some actual facts, <laughs> some, some data, some statistics, some studies that had been done that showed while that does happen some, that was really more the exception than the rule. But instead, most of the studies that he had seen showed that the churches that were really growing, the churches that were really having an impact in their communities, were the ones that had very high expectations of even the newest of their members. That it was unacceptable to just walk in the door, sit for an hour, walk back out, and that be your participation in the life of the church. That wasn't going to work. You wouldn't even really be considered a member there if that is what your role in the church was. Example after example of churches that had higher expectations of what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ, those were the ones that were really growing. And so, as I heard this, my expectations found this little comic. My expectations just get lower and lower. Oh, that's great. Eventually I'll be able to meet all of them. That's how sometimes we deal with expectations. If we just lower our expectations enough, well then, great, everyone's going to be meeting them. And we can all just get along and act like everything's fine. As I heard about these high expectation churches and how much growth was coming in them, I had to ask myself a question. What's expected of me? What expectations have there been of me? Now, I was, you know, probably it's about 20 years old. I had spent pretty much my entire life in church up to that point. But how much was really expected of me at the churches that I had been a part of? Now, I know my family had expectations of me. 
And I am so thankful for those expectations today. Now, at the time, I wasn't always as thrilled with them. You know, the expectation that every time the church was doing something, you're going to be there. You're going to be a part of this. This is important. This is the most important thing we're doing. Everything else comes off the schedule because the people of God are getting together. There were times, admittedly, you know, I, I was a teenager once. So obviously there were times when I didn't always agree with that sentiment. There were times when I thought, oh, here we go again. <laughs> I think we've all felt that way, especially as teenagers. And it wasn't until I got past that stage and I looked back on my life and I looked back at those expectations my family had of me that I realized, wow, I was being taught something pretty powerful there. It's through those experiences. It wasn't while it was happening, but through those experiences, I looked back and I realized, wow, something was happening in me because I was there, because it was just drilled into my head that this matters more than anything else. And I learned some powerful lessons that are the ones that really helped me survive when I was out on my own and I had to stumble around figuring out my own faith. But when I asked the question to myself, honestly, okay, I know what my family had expected, my parents had expected of me, and I was thankful for what they did. But what had the church really expected of me? And all of those who would be sitting down the pew from me on any given Sunday morning, and maybe this was the, you know, cynicism of your 20s, you know, when you think you've figured everything out and, you know, you haven't quite gotten to the point yet when you realize you don't know anything. So I was still in that, I still think I know some things stage, and I thought, wow, it feels like the churches that I see around me, the ones I've been a part of, the ones that I know about, I mean, I was in Searcy, Arkansas, going to college, there were like 30 churches within walking distance, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, and I knew a lot of people at a lot of them, I had been to a lot of them, and Everywhere that I had been, the overwhelming impression that I had was that most churches were really scared to ask too much of the people that were there. So you're there, well, if we ask too much, we're going to scare people away. People aren't going to want to come back. That level of commitment, people aren't ready for that. You know, what, what if we ask too much and what if they leave? What if they're made uncomfortable by what we're asking of them? And so... We lower the expectations and say, great, eventually we can all just meet all of them. And so maybe the pews would get a little more full, but full of what exactly? Full of Christians? Full of disciples? Full of Christ followers? Jesus seemed to take this question of commitment pretty seriously. Just a cursory look at his life, we know that he took the idea of commitment very seriously because he had commitment that led him all the way to his own death, that led him to a cross. You can't tell me that Jesus himself was not committed to the mission of God with every fiber of his being. And he said, follow me. Now reading a moment ago, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man 
has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And I've heard lesson after lesson about some of the specifics of these situations and how on a cursory reading, it may seem a little harsh what Jesus is saying here and kind of unreasonable what Jesus is saying to these people. An understanding of that, like, Lord, let me go and bury my father, how it's clear when you look at the context and the culture that this man probably isn't someone whose father had just died and needed to go figure out the funeral arrangements. If this man's father had just died and that time and that culture, he wouldn't have even been there. He would have been with the mourners. He would have been expected to, almost required to be there. Instead, this is more of a situation of, Lord, I got something coming to me. Let me, let me just wait till my father passes away because, you know, if I follow you now, I might lose my inheritance. My father might not like what I'm going off to do. Let me let, me let things get squared away. Let me cross some, some T's and dot some I's. Let me get ready to follow. And a similar thing with this man who wants to go back and, and say goodbye to his family. And Jesus comes back with what seems to us like a really harsh response. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. Jesus takes commitment very seriously. Over in Matthew chapter 10, in ver- starting in verse 37, just a couple verses here. Does anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me? Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus takes commitment very seriously, and he says, Come and follow me. In this verse, says, Take up your cross and follow me. Notice it doesn't say, Take up your cross and then take it easy. <laughs> Take up your cross and then sit down and relax because, well, you're okay now. You don't have to worry about anything else. A great 20th century missionary, E. Stanley Jones, once said, It costs very little to be religious. There is no cross in it. It costs your very all to be a Christian. You look at just like the last half of, of Luke chapter 14, and I wanted to go into that more, but I, just for the sake of time, I, I couldn't go into detail there. Just later today, just take a look at the last half of Luke chapter 14 and ask, is Jesus serious about commitment? You read that, you're going to be challenged. You read that, you're going to ask yourself, wow, do we take our commitment to a life in Christ In really following him, do we take it nearly as seriously as he does? About, I don't know, five or six years ago, I was reading on the blog of Ben Witherington III, quite a name there, um, really one of the leading New Testament scholars um, that we've got today. Um, Very intelligent, wise 
scholar of the New Testament. And he, I like reading what he has to say. But a few years back, he, he just threw up this little quote that he had found from Wilbur Reese that I'm never going to forget. <laughs> said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a foreigner or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. In his comments on this, he said, I especially like the line, I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. This, I am afraid, is exactly what people want out of their worship and church experiences. Not something that demands them to pick up a cross, make major sacrifices, and follow Jesus. Rather, they want something that makes them comfortable with who they already are and how they already are. They want acceptance as they are, not repentance, so they can be who they ought to be. And honestly, I'm troubled. I am deeply troubled that the majority of Christians in this world seem to believe that the majority of what the church does just isn't that important. If we want $3 worth of God, we want maybe about a nickel's worth of the church. I'm not just talking about this congregation or this area or even this country. I think this is a problem in churches everywhere. I think this is an epidemic. And churches are trying so hard to lead people to a life of discipleship. Now, what it means to truly live the life of a Christian, to truly take up your cross, is so complicated and complex and it's going to play out so differently in each and every life. There's so many variables that will make it look a little bit different for each of us. But I think every church, this one included, really tries to at least provide a pretty good starter kit. Something to get you down, started walking down that road. You know, the, just some of the built-in church stuff that we do can really take us pretty far. I mean, these banners that we have up here, we've had them up there for, well, let's see, I guess close to three years now because that's about how long ago I started preaching and that was from these words were from one of the first series that I preached here about what we try to do as a church these words worship grow connect shine serve it's on the back of the cards I give out with information about the church worship grow connect shine serve these they're not in that order up here because they didn't look as good in that order but that's the order that I preached them in um But these are very basic, fundamental things to what it means to live a Christian life. We've got to worship. And so, as a church, we provide an opportunity to help you get started. Come. We'll come together. We'll worship together. But we hope that that leads you to a life of worship. We want you to grow. We have, we have classes. We have times to get together to dig into the Word deeply to encourage and challenge one another in, in classes and small groups and, and other opportunities to come together to do that. But I think it's our hope. I think it's our intention that that only be the beginning. That this leads to a passion for growth in grace. 
growth in the will of God and knowledge of Him that will draw you closer to Him. We would connect to one another. We want to provide opportunities for that. Mention the different small group things we do, the, the fellowship times we have together, the opportunities we have to come together as a family to be connected to one another because we desperately need to be connected to one another. Because as we are connected to each other, we can pull each other up towards our Father. The rest of the world isn't going to do that. We need closer connections to our family than to anything out in the world. We provide opportunities to shine a light. We provide this encouragement these times when we can go and we can be the hands and feet of Christ to others. That we can go, even if it's something as simple as what we did a couple of months ago at Community Day, just standing out there and said, yes, we're a part of this church and we'd like to tell you about Jesus. We'd like you to know about what we believe and do. And each and every one of us, service must be a part of what our lives are about because it's definitely part of what Christ's life was about. And so if we're going to follow him, we need to serve. And so this church provides opportunities that we can serve both inside this church and the ministries of this church, but also service opportunities outside in the world and in this community. Once again, hoping that that just becomes the beginning. Now, there are some basic things, and we've been talking for months about why we do the things that we do. We've got these banners up here. We've got these programs. We've got these opportunities that you can avail yourself of. And if you don't avail yourself of them, you need to ask yourself why. Now, are you getting these things another way? Are you living out these characteristics and qualities of the life of a disciple just in other avenues? Have you grown to the point where you can take the training wheels off and you can go out into the wild, into the mission field, and pursue God, not just in these walls and with these people, but in every aspect of your life? Great. I hope that's the case. Because it's really not about being at all of our stuff. That's not the point. But if there are areas, if these are areas of your life that have gone just undeveloped and unexplored, I think we all have to do a very serious and honest heart check and ask ourselves why. Now, you can hear me talking about all these things that we do, getting together with the church, and I know I definitely thought things this way sometimes as I was growing up, when I wasn't quite as on board with why my parents were making it so important for me to be doing all this stuff. Because we know there's a problem with checklist Christianity. It's like, aren't we always talking about this problem? Isn't it really about relationship and not about just doing the right stuff? Well, yeah, because there's a real problem with checklists. Because, see, checklists are about minimum requirements. Checklists are about saying, what's the least I can do to get by? What's going to make me okay? But, you see, we can have the same problem with relationship when we look at it incorrectly. We can say, oh, well, God loves me, so I can get by with a little less. I can get away with less because there's love there so I don't need to worry about it so much God will let that one slide because he loves me well of course he loves you 
You know, I've heard it said, and it's really sad, but I know in a lot of places this is said to be true. And it said, you know, don't ever do business with your brother or sister in Christ. I've heard people say that just right up front. They say because people have had experiences over and over again where the people that they love, the people that they're closest to, that they have this loving family Christian relationship with, and think like, well, they're not going to hold me to quite the same standard they might hold someone else. If, you know, if I don't really do as good a job for them as I would for someone else that hires me, well, you know, they've got to forgive me. They're my church. What an awful way to think. And I'm sorry, I'm sorrowful that people have had reason to say that. People can say, well, you know, doesn't God love me just the way I am? Well, of course he does. It's already been said here more than once this morning, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved you when you weren't worth loving. But he loves you far too much to think so little of you to say that you shouldn't even bother trying to take up your cross and follow. You shouldn't even bother trying to really be a disciple to invest your whole life into following him. It's like, ah, God doesn't look at you and say, ah, they can't handle that. No, he loves you far too much to think so little of you. And in fact, he loves you too much to leave you on your own. He's given us his spirit so that we can live that life that he's called us to. He's a father that has high expectations of his children. Any of you who are parents or or have been teachers, you know, we hear over and over again the tragedy of low expectations. How in so many situations, when we have low expectations of children, well, they rise to meet them. When they hear that... They're not probably going to be able to do that. They're not really going to be able to do this well, to learn this much, to behave a certain way, to understand certain things. Well, they'll say, okay, I guess you're right. It's out of love for our children that we set high expectations, that we think that they can do just about anything. That we don't set artificial limits on them. Because we want them to rise to meet their potential. And I know that God loves us far more than we could even love our own children. As hard as that is for me to comprehend as a father, I know that God loves me even more than I love my own children. And I want my children to meet their potential. I want them to not sell themselves short. And I know that when God looks at me, he says, Nathan, don't sell yourself short. I've given you my son. I've given you his life. You've put it on. His life lives in you. Don't settle for less. God's love for us should lead us to raise our standards, not lower them. Because see, Jesus sets the bar so high for his followers. Why would we want to set it any lower? A couple weeks ago, I saw a line that Rick actually wrote, minister that many of you are familiar with. It said, Jesus did not say, accept me. He said, follow me. And the difference makes all the difference. Because see, I'm not saying that we just need a longer checklist. I'm saying that we need a deeper desire for God and a deeper desire to truly be his disciple. 
You see, in our, but in our reaction against sort of a works-based religion, we can over-spiritualize our Christianity. Now, I say that kind of ironically, because despite how that term is used of over-spiritualizing, there's really nothing spiritual about it. We can get to the point where what we do doesn't really matter as long as we agree to the right things, as long as we believe the right things, turning it into a faith that's just in our heads, maybe in our hearts, maybe, probably not. That would lead to action. That might get dangerous. But when we say over-spiritualize, what we really mean is over-intellectualize our faith. We get ourselves to the point that what we do simply doesn't matter as long as we believe the right things. And yes, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works so that no one boasts. We're, we're not saved by anything that we've done by ourselves. But you see, we're saved by faith. But James tells us that faith is alive, that faith without works, that's not faith at all. That's dead. And faith isn't dead. Faith is alive. What we do matters. I mean, one of the earliest Christian heresies, these different flavors of of Gnosticism, of this separation, this strict distinction between the flesh and the spirit. And some branches of it took it into such a, a perverse idea, so far from true faith, from the true gospel, saying that as long as we believe and worship in the right ways, well, what we do in the flesh doesn't really matter. What we do matters. See, when we have the choice, and we have the choice more often than we think, but when we truly have the choice, it matters what we choose. Now, I called this lesson Opportunity Cost, which probably seems like a really strange title, but the reason I did is is we need to ask ourselves, you know, what does it cost us to do this? The opportunity cost is an, is an economic term that you're probably all familiar with. You know, I think it's one of the first things you talk about in any kind of business or economics class on the high school or college level. I think you even heard about it some in middle school. It's simply saying, with a finite set of resources, to use them in X means you can't use them in Y. If you do one thing with your resources, whether it be money or time or whatever else it may be, it means you're giving up something else. Saying, or put another way, you know, saying yes to one thing means saying no to something else. And so we've got to ask ourselves. Because see, Jesus is very upfront about there is a cost to following him. But what does it cost you to take advantage of the opportunities that this church provides you? to be a disciple, to follow? What does it cost you in your day-to-day life to be a Christian in every moment? Yeah, there are things that we have to say no to. Yes, there are things we have to give up. But, what does it cost you to let those opportunities pass by? It cuts both ways. When we let those opportunities pass by, when we see what we can do in the name of God, and we say, "Eh, not right now. I don't really feel like it. I don't want to give up this other thing. We miss out on living that life to the full, that living life abundantly that Christ says He came to give us. You know, John talked at the 
before his prayer this morning about Wednesday night at the nursing home. I was thinking about that the whole rest of the week as I was preparing this lesson. I amen to everything you said, John. That really was one of those moments, one of those thin places where it seemed like the distance between heaven and earth was mighty small. And as good as that made me feel, as much as I could see the way we were blessing the residents of that nursing home, and as much as I knew they were blessing me as we worshiped together, that was preparing this lesson, there was still part of me that was kind of sad that so few of us got to experience it. Something powerful happened in that moment. We got a little piece of that abundant life. Those that were there, I think we will all say we were blessed immensely by God that night. But I weep for those who miss out. Yesterday morning, we had this opportunity to serve a couple of different projects for Habitat for Humanity or for the Domestic Violence Association. And the things we're able to do, simple things. But I was blessed yesterday. I was telling Jim earlier, as we were walking back to the car, Isaac was asking me, so is, it, is this like something we get to do every year? Or like, when, when, when are we going to do more of this? He's six years old, but he understood that something powerful was happening when in the name of Jesus Christ, we helped somebody. We did some good for some people that we don't even know. He knew that he was blessed and he wanted it again. He wanted more. He's like, that's what I want to keep doing. When can we do it again? Which as grown-ups could get that through our heads sometimes. Like I said, I'm not just talking about the church stuff. I'm not just talking about the stuff on the schedule. There are many, many things throughout our lives every day that we can choose to do for the glory of God. But that means giving up some things for the glory of me. For the comfort of me. For the convenience of me. Because that's where we get ourselves into some trouble. And where we miss out on something great and powerful that God wants to do in us. This isn't just about attendance. That was really important to me when I was a kid, like through elementary school. Like I loved that like for years I got that perfect attendance award at school. <laughs> don't really know where those are. I think there's little certificates they gave me. I don't know where those are now. Those don't really matter now. It's not the fact that I was there that was really what mattered. It was the fact that, hey, I learned something while I was there. The knowledge is still with me. Those little pieces of paper that said I was there every day, until fifth grade, I got sick for a week, like in fifth grade, and it killed me. But anyway, that was, that was, still, still bugs me. <laughs> but that doesn't really matter now. Just showing up doesn't make you a better Christian. I don't want to be misunderstood here. But now participating in the life of the church because of a desire to grow closer to God, well, that's something he can work with. Although showing up couldn't hurt. <laughs> It's the heart behind that attendance. It's the heart behind that participation that matters. When we have attached our identities, when we've attached our very lives, everything we are, 
to this body of Christ, to this family, to this kingdom of God. Well, that's when what we do as Christians and what we do together as a church really starts to actually matter. It starts to make a difference in this world and in the world to come. And so we have these two extremes of over-intellectualizing and doing nothing or just making it a checklist and doing everything. Neither of those are good. There's a balance between the two of them that is of the utmost importance. It is vital that we find a, a balance between the concrete and the abstract. And I believe that that balance comes from a commitment to these things, to, to these things, these components of a Christian life. Worship, grow, connect, shine, serve. It's a nice shorthand for be a Christian, would you? <laughs> Follow Jesus, please. <clears throat> and see, I think that's why those high commitment churches that seem so foreign to me as a college junior were so, I guess, successful is the only word I can think of, why they were so effective in what they tried to do to reach others. Because they taught and they truly believed that entering into a life in Christ was a commitment not to be taken lightly. This is the 16th lesson in this series that started off with this question of why church? And a lesson about why we do the things we do as a church and as individuals. And this is the last one of them. But all of them have this overarching why. Why are we a part of any of it? Why would we commit to these things? Why would we commit to a life of following Jesus? We know it's necessary to be truly committed to be worthy of Him. But why do we start in the first place? That question is only answered by the gospel. That Jesus in the flesh came to this world. He fulfilled all the promises of God to his people Israel. That a Savior was coming, a Messiah is coming, the kingdom is coming, and then he came. The king came and he lived on this world to show us what it meant to live the life that God has called us to. He showed us what it meant to love in his every act, in his every word on this world until the ultimate act of love on the cross for you and for me. If you want to ask why any of this stuff matters, we'll look at the cross. See the love of God raised up on display. When we see that love and we really understand that love, we know that we love because He first loved us. That's why. We love because He loved and He continues to love. Because He called and He continues to call. Jesus comes revealing in its fullness who the Father is and His love for us. And then He says, okay, you've seen Me. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. Now come and follow Me. Come do what I do. Show the love 
that you've been shown. We love because he loved. We follow because he's the only one worth following. We do all of these things because they're the only things that are really ever going to matter. Because they are the heart of God and what he's called us to. If you want to answer that call this morning, if you've seen the love of God on display and you know that the only appropriate response to that is to give that love back to him and committing your life to him and following him in everything that you do, I pray that you would make that first step if you haven't taken it yet to confess your faith in Jesus, your desire, your intent to follow him all the days of your life and to take on his name and his life in baptism. But know that that's just the first step. Don't take it lightly because there's a lot of steps after that to truly be a follower. If there's anything we can do this morning to help you with your commitment, to help you as you seek to follow him, if there's anything at all we could do, we would love to talk with you about that this morning. Please let us know. Please come. While we stand.